0: Hi, guys. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. We have a big show for you today, a very big show. I'm sitting here in downtown Washington, D.C. We are in the belly of the beast, and it's actually very apropos that we are sitting in the middle of the swamp because what we are going to talk about today is... administrative state. It is Schedule F. It is how we actually drain this cesspool in which we are sitting right now. Um, The reason that I'm here is because I am in Washington, D.C. for the Young America's Foundation Conference, their national college student conference. It's a fabulous event. Um, Just like I said yesterday, the energy here is so palpable. We're filming in a room right next to the main ballroom. So if you hear some noise in the background it's well it's the students it's it's the students reacting to the speakers the amazing speakers and um, this caveat that I'm giving you is actually for the benefit of my audio engineer, because <laughs> otherwise, it's his job to try to scrub the audio clean. And it's not easy when there's roars and chants of USA that are happening in the background. If you haven't already subscribed to my show, please do that. Go over to Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe, give me a five-star rating, write me a glowing review, please. Or if you don't like the show, you can tell me why, but you know, send me an email if you want to do that. Only leave me a review if it's a positive one. Also, if you wouldn't mind subscribing to my YouTube channel, go to The Liz Wheeler Show on YouTube and, you know, hit that bell so that you can be notified every time we drop new content. Um, What we're going to talk about today, I'm very excited about the topic. We're going to talk about President Trump's comeback tour. He is back in the swamp in Washington, D.C. for the first time since his presidency, giving a huge speech. He gave a huge speech, essentially about the administrative state, about the swamp, about how the swamp tried to take him down how the swamp in his opinion did take him down and what i want to talk about today specifically is is this plan that's being proposed and it's it's not just being proposed now it was actually something that trump signed an executive order on in october of 2020 it's called schedule f it's a strategy to drain the swamp it's a strategy to dismantle the administrative state to give a president a little more power over firing people bureaucrats in the administrative state who are not doing the job of supporting the chief executive in the executive branch and I want to talk to you about why really any Republican candidate for president or any Republican at the congressional level who doesn't understand and then publicly acknowledge the seriousness of the threat that's posed by the bureaucrats in the administrative in the administrative state by this This enormous bureaucracy, why those Republicans can't be taken seriously. So we're going to talk about this specific executive order that the left, by the way, the mainstream media is trying to demonize. They're trying to make it sound like, well, surprise, surprise. They're trying to make it sound like something it is not. We're going to talk about Schedule F, and we're going to talk about, you know, the what it is of this. What is Schedule F? Um, we're going to talk about why the left is so threatened about it, why they hate it so much. And then we're just going to talk about is this a practical, workable plan? Um, would it actually succeed in draining the swamp? Now, some of you have told me that your favorite types of episodes that we do are ones where we get into the nitty gritty, we get into the weeds on legal topics, on some of these policy issues, and, you know, break down the what it isness of something that, you know, takes five, six, seven hours to research, but we try to distill it into. Uh, a 30, 40, 50 minute episode. So that's what you can expect today. Let's dig into all of this. Okay, so let me tell you about Beam Organics. Beam Organics, I like Beam Organics because it is natural. And as you know, I'm a crunchy person who doesn't trust big pharma, but also I try to be as organic and and, and earthy as possible, not not in the new agey way, but in the healthy foods way. Um, I like Beam Organics because it does the trick when it comes to sleepless nights. We've all suffered from this, but did you know that if you get poor sleep, it can impact you know your weight? You can cause weight gain, it can cause mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity. A better tomorrow for you, starts tonight, let me introduce you to Beam Dream. Beam is the world's most innovative functional wellness brand. They have unique products for everything from sleep to recovery. And today, for you, you get a special discount available for Beam's sleep product. It's called Dream Powder. It's their best-selling healthy hot cocoa. Um, 98% of people surveyed fell asleep faster when taking Beam Dream, and 99% of people experience better sleep quality. Um, If you don't love it, you can get your money back. For a limited time, you can get $20 off when you go to beamorganics.com slash Liz and use my promo code Liz at checkout. That's B-E-A-M organics.com slash Liz and use promo code Liz at checkout for $20 off. beamorganics.com slash Liz. Okay, so before we dive into Schedule F, before we look at what this is and why the left is so afraid of it and would it actually work, I want to just zoom out for a second and look at the fact, look at what President Trump is doing right now. Um, he just, he, he's in Washington, D.C. on what I think is the start of his comeback tour. We will we will have to see exactly what he's doing here, but he's sort of ramping up his appearances. And he appeared in Washington, D.C. this week. He appeared late last week at the Turning Point USA conference. And the interesting part of his appearance at the Turning Point USA conference was the fact that this straw poll made a lot of headlines. And I wanna show you this straw poll on the screen. This straw poll found that 78.7% of Republicans who attended this conference, obviously, wanted President Trump to win if he ran in 2024. That's at least what the headlines claimed. But if you actually look at the question, and I don't wanna raid on anybody's parade, Um, That's not the intention of this, but if you look at the wording, the phraseology or the methodology of this poll, you will find that the question isn't quite what the headline said it was. This is what the question is. If Donald Trump did run and the 2024 Republican presidential primary offers the following choices, for whom would you vote? Okay. So that question, that's an interesting question, sure, but it actually doesn't tell people what people want to know. Um, A lot of people want to know, okay, in a hypothetical hypothetical scenario, who would you pick to be the Republican presidential nominee? Meaning, do you want Senator Cruz? Do you want uh, Governor DeSantis? Do you want President Trump? Who do you want to be president in 2024? And what this poll tells us is actually not what people want. What this poll tells us is that they would defer to President Trump and treat him as though he were the incumbent. Meaning if an, if an incumbent Republican president or an incumbent Democrat president decides to run for re-election, which they always do, there's not a primary. Nobody from their own party challenges them or very infrequently does someone challenge them from their own party because their incumbent, they're incumbent, they, they receive this deference where it's like, where it's, okay, you can run again. That's what this poll tells us because it starts with this caveat. If Donald Trump did run, and the 2024 Republican presidential primary offers the following choices. So there's that caveat that changes what this poll is. Just something that I noticed that I thought was very interesting. The headlines did not pick up on the nuance of this. Um, whether this means anything or not, I don't know. But the headlines were not quite accurate. And, you know, I think they should be. I think people should be nuanced and accurate. Okay. So one of the things about draining the swamp, and remember, President Trump promised to drain the swamp. This was one of the main promises that he made on the campaign trail in 2016 that he was going to drain the swamp. And I would say, looking back in hindsight, at the four years that Trump was in office, he failed to drain the swamp. He did get rid of some swamp creatures, and he certainly deregulated a lot of our, our a lot of different sectors and agencies in our country, but he, he generally failed to drain the swamp completely. And um, the reason for that is because he underestimated what it was. I think that there was a general understanding of the swamp at the beginning of the Trump administration, and and perhaps this was a lot of Republicans as well as administration officials, perhaps even President Trump himself, and their understanding was that there were a few bureaucrats at the top of each of these agencies that needed to be fired, that these political appointees that ran the agencies were the ones who were poisoning the agencies. The FBI is maybe a good example here, that you'll, you'll hear even a lot of Republicans say, you know what? the everyday men and women who serve and sacrifice in the FBI, those people are good. Those people aren't political. It's the James Comeys at the top who are political. It's the it's the Lisa Page and the Peter Strzok's at the top, these political appointees, the executives at the top that pollute it. And this was the generalized understanding of why the bureaucracy in our country and executive agencies was, was so corrupt. And it turns out that that assumption that a lot of people made wasn't correct. And and basically, it can be condensed to President Trump underestimated what the swamp was when he made the promise to drain it. So he failed failed to drain it because when he made the promise, there was a lack of understanding of exactly what it would take to drain the swamp. So the swamp, of course, and this is just a brief history of what, what the administrative state is. When I say this phrase, administrative state and i and i replace it often i use them interchangeably with the swamp what is this what is the administrative state well the administrative state is composed of government employees and officials in the different agencies in the federal government and many of whom, most of whom, the vast majority of whom are not appointed. They don't go through a confirmation hearing. They um, have no accountability to voters because they're certainly not elected. And it's actually nearly impossible to fire them. Yet, they have the power to interpret vague legislative words that defer to these agencies on rulemaking. They have the power to... um, Interpret these rules, basically imposing their version of their ideology through these rules on us and regulations on us as the people. This is this is just the very very simple explanation of what the administrative state is. It's it's unaccountable employees and executive agencies who we did not vote into power. They um, they're not accountable. They weren't confirmed even by our representatives in Congress, and they can't be fired. And yet they have a ton of power. And they've obviously been known to abuse their power. You can, you can think of any, I challenge you actually to think of any agency that you can possibly think of. And um, uh, I, I challenge you, can you, think of, can you think of abuse from that agency? I can't think of a single agency where there's not examples of abuse. So here's the thing, the administrative state as it currently stands here in the United States was not part of the design of our country. It's, it's not part of the constitution of the United States. So where exactly did it come from? where did it come from? Because our, our constitution was formulated um, to separate the powers at the federal level, to separate it into the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And this was done deliberately so that we could have a system of checks and balances. And, and when you have this, this um, it's not even a gray area, when you have this violation of the boundaries of the, of the three powers of executive, legislative, and judicial, when you have the legislative powers um, deferring some of their legislative authority to the executive branch, It becomes these lines become blurred. These boundaries are broken. And in fact, if you want to look at it from a legalistic standpoint, there is a doctrine called the separation of powers doctrine, and there is a legal jurisprudence called the non-delegation theory. The non-delegation theory says each of these branches actually doesn't have the authority to violate the boundaries of their branch. So you're actually not allowed to do that, even if you choose to do it. You can't give away your own power because your power doesn't belong to you. If you are a legislator, it belongs to the people as as Uh, conferred on you by the constitution. So there's an argument uh, to be made, which I personally buy into that says that these, these people in Congress and these, these bureaucrats in the executive branch are actually violating our separation of powers doctrine and the non-delegation theory that they're doing something that is not allowed. I guess, regardless of whether they're not allowed or not, it's, it's certainly an unwise thing to do. It's an unwise thing to do, um, Well, for the obvious reasons, because what happens is these bureaucrats who have ideological agendas then interpret rules the way that they want and impose them on our and impose them on the people. So how did we get so off track is a question that we have to ask. How did this come into being? Because we didn't have this administrative state or this violation of separation of powers when we when our country was first founded. And the answer to that is the people that got us off track, wait for it, you're gonna be really surprised by this. Progressives. Yes, the left. The left, even back 100 years ago, the left actually got us off track on this. And it started with Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, he was the 28th president of the United States. He served from 1913 to 1921. And Woodrow Wilson, it's funny to me that a man like this could even be president because he just fundamentally disagreed with our founding fathers that the purpose of government was to protect the rights of the people. Woodrow Wilson didn't believe that. He believed that government should actually take care of the people. He believed that government should do what he, uh, his phrase was do what the times demanded. So he believed in essentially a living constitution. He believed in the government welfare state. And because of this, he was the one who first, I guess, dreamed up this idea of this neutral, this politically neutral administrative class of workers in our federal government. This, 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 um, these federal workers who were a constant, who stayed in the federal, working in the federal government, administering the executive branch, even through transitions from one president of one party to a president of another party. And to me, that's just ridiculous and absurd that, you know, less than a hundred years later, after he assured us that these would be politically neutral people who would just be there to, for continuity, to administer, to administer the state, right? the administrative state, that, um, what is it, 95% of political donations from the administrative state are to Democrats, hardly politically neutral. So Wilson, um, Woodrow Wilson came up with this idea, he dreamed this up, and it really came to fruition with FDR's New Deal and LBJ's Great Society. These were two presidents who latched on to Woodrow Wilson's ideas and brought it to fruition through government programs, which violated the separation of doctrine, or the separation of powers doctrine, Um, which grew this administrative state. And it was during this time that the Supreme Court also stopped enforcing the non-delegation theory, which didn't allow the legislative branch to delegate their power of rulemaking to the executive branch. So- All this being said, this is a little brief history of what exactly is it that we're dealing with here? Why was it that President Trump wasn't able to drain the swamp? It wasn't just a matter of a politician making an empty promise and then neglecting to fulfill that promise or to follow through on that promise. It was... Somewhat of a lack of understanding on his part and on his staff's part in his administration, and a lot of the Republican Party, too, I think didn't understand the depth of corruption that existed in the administrative state in the swamp. We thought that it was um it, it that playing whack-a-mole essentially would do the trick, that if you identified a bureaucrat that was abusing their power like a fauci or a Burks, that you could fire them, and okay, that would drain the swamp. That would get rid of these, these people at the tops of these agencies that you know were dribbling down throughout their agencies all these politics. So this is kind of the history of how we got to where we are. Now, we saw almost a challenge to this. We came this close to the administrative state taking a really severe blow just a couple of weeks ago at the Supreme Court. I like Nutrafol because it is both natural and it also works. Now, we all know that half of the people who are watching and listening to this show right now are balding men. Yes. Neutrophil is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. And when I say without compromise, I'm told that a common complaint with hair growth supplements is that it decreases sex drive. Let me tell you, nobody wants that. Not so with neutral. Neutrophil is clinically shown. Um, it's made of 21 natural ingredients that actually supports sex drive. It supports better sleep and less stress too, in addition to its hair growth properties. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after both three and six months. You too can grow healthier hair and you can support our show, which needless to say is a win-win for us all um, by going to nutriful.com and entering my promo code, Liz, to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere. And it's only available to US customers for a limited time. Plus, you'll get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. It's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com. And use my promo code. You have to use my promo code, L-I-Z, Liz. Okay. So we came this close to seeing the administrative state um, dealt, well, a death blow at the Supreme Court. And actually, let me rewind and tell a funny story really quick. So a couple weeks ago, around the, the week before the 4th of July, I had spoken at a conference in California and on the way back, on the way, on the flight back, I had a layover in Chicago and I ate some chia pudding in the Chicago airport. Yes, I know. Every time I tell this story, people look at me like, hmm, was that advisable? And the answer to whether you should eat chia pudding out of a vending machine at the Chicago airport is No you shouldn't. Um, So I'll let your imagination infer the rest. But Spencer Clavin very kindly and very competently guest hosted my show for two days while I recovered from that chia pudding. And I was so jealous this whole time, because he got to talk about the Supreme Court's ruling on the administrative state. It was a case that came before the Supreme Court based on an Obama administration um, ruling on or an Obama administration fiat, I should say it's not ruling; they can't rule. An Obama administration EPA fiat that um, that well violated every constitutional every constitutional provision that you can possibly imagine. But it was the work of the administrative state. It was the work of the uh, of the swamp. The Environmental Protection Agency was trying to impose on us, the people, um, well, law without it having come from Congress, and they're not allowed to do that. And so the Supreme Court had the opportunity to say, no, you are not allowed to do that. You are not allowed to use an executive agency to do this. You have to You have, to have the legislature legislate. Of course, we know what happened. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, he was too chicken to actually overturn Chevron. Chevron is the Supreme Court precedence. It's a prior ruling that says that courts must defer to the recommendations, the rulemaking, by the bureaucracy, which is the administrative state. Um, And it needs to be overturned in order to to abolish the administrative state. Roberts did not want to do that. Major disappointment. It was good. I'll give give a thumbs up to the court for saying that the Obama EPA overreached. Like, of course they did. Obviously they did. Um, But the Supreme Court in this ruling upheld what they call the major questions doctrine. This is where I was very disappointed. Um, The major questions doctrine says that Congress can delegate rulemaking power to executive agencies the administrative state but they can't delegate legislative power to agencies to answer major questions that that right or that power is reserved for congress and it's basically the major questions doctrine is as stupid as it sounds because it's so vague it's nowhere in the constitution nowhere but the reason it's so vague is because it's subjective what you can ask the question to anybody what constitutes a major question and everybody might have a different response to this it's it's completely dependent on someone's subjective opinion. And so terrible ruling on that part from the Supreme Court. Um, And when they ruled that, I thought, well, if only we had a body, a government body intended to decide these policy questions where uh, those making policy decisions that impact people are accountable, you know, to the same people. And I thought, oh, wait, wait a sec. We do. It's called Congress. Um, Supreme Court had an opportunity to deal somewhat of a death blow to the administrative state, and they didn't do it. They did not do it, and that brings us to where we are. Where we are, we're going back, we're circling back around to the beginning here, um, to President Trump being in Washington, D.C. Last week, Axios published a series of articles, and they intended them to be hit pieces. You'll be able to tell, I'm going to read a little bit of it in a second. You'll be able to tell that it's a hit piece based on its tone and its foreboding language. But the reason, the topic of these hit pieces was something called Schedule F. It's an executive order that President Trump signed in October of 2020, right before the presidential election, and Schedule F was an effort to combat the administrative state by looking at these bureaucrats from a different perspective, looking at the bureaucrats less like... The problem resided at the top of each agency, that it's not just the cabinet secretary or the five or 10 people who serve directly underneath them, but looking at this massive number of people who work in um, civil service jobs, these protected jobs. So maybe these, these sort of nameless, faceless people that we never hear about because they're not they're not high enough level that they're being reported on or talking to the media. But these are the people that actually... Execute on the administration of each and every thing that happens at these executive agencies. And so what um, Schedule F, this, this Schedule F executive order was supposed to do was allow the president of the United States to, uh, to reassign a, a large number of these, of these employees in the administrative state to something called a Schedule F employee. And a Schedule F employee would be designated as a political employee which would then allow the president to fire that person at will versus where it stands right now. The president can look at somebody in, in an agency, even a secretary, at a cabinet secretary can look at someone within their own agency that's doing a poor job. Maybe they're not even being political. There's basically no way to fire them. This This executive order would have allowed the president to designate a much larger number of people as political appointees so that then the president could Um, hire them based on their qualifications for the job versus other preferences, or fire them based on them doing a poor job. So that's just a tiny bit of background on Schedule F. We'll get into it in a little more depth in just a minute. But Apsios ran a series of hit pieces on on President Trump's um, executive order. And they're acting like it didn't happen already, like it would only be something for Trump's second term. But I want to read a little bit of this article. This is what it's called. It's called a radical plan for Trump's second term. And it's written, by, um, it's written by an Axios employee by the name of Jonathan Swan. This is what he writes. Former President Trump's top allies are preparing to radically reshape the federal government if he is reelected, purging potentially thousands of civil servants and filling career posts with loyalists to him and his America first ideology, people involved in the discussions tell Axios. The impact, Swan writes, could go well beyond typical conservative targets, such as the Environmental Protection Agency and the Internal Revenue Service. Trump allies are working on plans that would potentially strip layers at the Justice Department, including the FBI, and reaching into national security, intelligence, the State Department, and the Pentagon, sources close to the former president say. I love the foreboding tone that he writes in as if this is like a bad thing. This is the heart of the swamp. He writes, during his presidency, Trump almost Often complained about what he called the deep state. The heart of the plan is derived from an executive order known as Schedule F, developed and refined in secret over most of the second half of Trump's term, and launched 13 days before the 2020 election. By the way, it wasn't like developed in secret in the sense that it was it was developed with um, with some nefarious purpose. It it, it required any kind of um, restructuring of the executive branch is is slow. This is a this is a very Tortoise like, tortoise like apparatus, and these changes have to be very legalistic, very nuanced, very detailed. This was not something that was um, concocted in secret in a back room somewhere. That's Congress. That's what happens in Congress. President Trump simply wrote this executive order and then, yes, issued it. And it took too long, of course, but what doesn't in Washington, D.C.? Um, He goes, as Trump publicly flirts with a 2024 comeback campaign, this planning is quietly flourishing from Mar-a-Lago to Washington with his blessing, but without the knowledge of some people in his orbit. Trump remains distanced by his obsession with contesting the 2020 election results, but he has endorsed the work of several groups to prime an an administration in waiting. Personnel and action plans would be executed in the first hundred days of a second term starting on January 20th, 2025. Their work could accelerate controversial policy and enforcement changes, but also enable revenge tours against real or perceived enemies and potentially insulate the president and allies from investigation or prosecution. And this is where he really gets unhinged here, because if the president is the chief executive, which he is, and presides over the executive branch, which is staffed with people who are completely ideologically opposed to the president and actually actively work to stymie his work. The president should have a right to fire those people and it's not some kind of revenge tour. It's not some kind of uh, retaliation and it it, it doesn't insulate the president from what? Like, Why would you need to prosecute or investigate the president? He should be able to fire the people who works with him. That's how it works in any company. That's how any functioning apparatus works, that the person in charge is able to hire and fire people who are, are able to help him achieve the goal, help him achieve the agenda of whatever apparatus it is, in this case, the government. This is what Swan writes. They intend to stack thousands of mid-level staff jobs. Well-funded groups are already developing lists of candidates selected often for their animus against the system in line with Trump's long-running obsession with draining the swamp. This includes building executive databases of people vetted as being committed to Trump and his agenda. The preparations are far more advanced and ambitious than previously reported. What is happening now is an inversion of the slapdash and virtually non-existent infrastructure surrounding Trump ahead of his 2017 presidential transition. These groups are operating on multiple fronts, shaping policies, identifying top lieutenants, curating an alternative labor force of unprecedented scale, and preparing for legal challenges and defenses that might go before Trump-friendly judges all the way to a 6-3 Supreme Court. Again, they're making it sound like this this, this is so bad when, if you'll remember, one of the left's primary complaints that was constant throughout the Trump administration was the revolving door of Trump administration officials. Every time on uh, a well-known name who served in the Trump administration left. The mainstream media was like, oh my goodness, the end of the world. This person's leaving. Everything is 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 disorganized. We who knows who's running what? We're in the hands of, of a madman who who can't keep anybody around him. So marry that or contrast that with what with what this article is saying: that, oh my goodness, President Trump is planning for the next time. He's thinking about who he might staff with so that he picks better staff members he actually wants to create lists of of potential candidates who might fit certain positions and they're painting this as if it's bad because why well because trump derangement syndrome doesn't have any ideological bent except for hating president trump it's not that it's not that a revolving door is bad in and of itself if the people are bad it's not that preparing a list of potential staffers that might be qualified for certain positions is that it's that Trump's involved with both. That's why Axios, that's why um, the left is so is so afraid of this. So Swan goes on to talk about the centerpiece of this plan. He says Trump signed an executive order creating, it's called creating Schedule F in the accepted service in October of 2020, which established a new employment category for federal employees. It received wide media coverage for a short period, then was largely forgotten in the mayhem and aftermath of January 6th, and quickly was rescinded by President Biden. Sources close to Trump say that if he were elected to a second term, he would immediately reimpose it. Tens of thousands of civil servants who serve in roles deemed to have some influence over policy would be assigned, reassigned as Schedule F employees. Upon reassignment, they would lose their employment protections. New presidents, Swan writes, typically get to replace more than 4,000 so-called political appointees to oversee the running of their administrations. But below this rotating layer of political appointees sits a mass of government workers who enjoy strong employment protections and typically continue their service from one administration to the next, regardless of the president's party affiliation. An initial estimate by the Trump official who came up with Schedule F found it could apply to as many as 50,000 federal workers, a fraction of the workforce of more than 2 million, but a segment with a profound role in shaping American life. Trump, in theory, Swan writes, could fire tens of thousands of career officials with no recourse for appeals. He could replace them with people he believes are more loyal to him and his America First agenda. Even if Trump did not deploy Schedule F to this extent, the very fact that such power exists could create a significant chilling effect on government employees. So when I read this piece for the first time, that was actually the sentence that stuck out at me the most. I'm going to read it again. Even if Trump did not deploy Schedule F to this extent, the very fact that such power exists could create a significant chilling effect on government employees. What do you mean? What kind of chilling effect? How would the threats of possibly being an at-will employee, meaning if you're not doing the job the president wants you to do, that he could fire you, how would that chill government employees? What be, What what particular actions would they stop partaking in? Because that's the that's the term, chilling effect. It means it would stop someone from doing something for fear of what the repercussions might be what would it what behaviors would it prevent them from engaging in if they were worried that they might be fired for those actions the answer to that is it would stop them from doing things that are actively counter to the agenda of the chief executive for whom they work so this i mean this right here betrays all of the anxiety of the left about schedule f is distilled in that sentence right there, a chilling effect effect on government employees. The only people that would be chilled would be people who were trying to push their ideology through the rulemaking of these executive agencies for which they work versus trying to execute the president's policy, which is what they're supposed to do, what their job description is. That's, That's the essence of all of the Democrats' fear about Schedule F. And I actually actually talked with a couple, so the groups that they're talking about. Let's talk about the groups. Before we talk about the groups, I want to talk to you about Moinkbox. I like Moinkbox because they are helping keep the U.S. independent from China. And that's a good thing and a necessary thing. 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company. That company, my friends, is owned by the Chinese. And this Chinese company's um, hogs are actually given something called ractopamine. Ractopamine is banned in 160 countries around the world, including in China, yet you will find this in your grocery store aisle every day. Do you want to eat this? The answer to that is uh, no, 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 no. There is a better way. I'd like to tell you about Moink. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm, of course, does it better. Uh, You choose what meat is delivered each month. You can cancel any time. The meat is ribeyes, chicken breasts, pork chops, salmon fillets, and so much more. I like Moink because they're committed to our country, and my husband can attest to the fact that Moink meat tastes good. Keep American Farmer going, by signing up at moinkbox.com slash Liz right now. And if you do, you will get a year free filet mignon, a year of the best filet mignon that you've ever tasted for free. That's one year, but it is for a limited time. So you have to go right now to moinkbox.com slash Liz. That's moinkbox.com slash Liz. Okay, so the second part of Democrats anxiety about Schedule F is not just this chilling effect that that the, that the possibility of being fired might have on the actions of these masses of government employees that staff the administrative state. The second part of their anxiety uh, lies in who these groups are that President Trump is allegedly, reportedly relying on to help build these lists of people who are better qualified to staff these jobs in the administrative state. We're talking groups like Russ Votes Group. Russ Vogt, um, he was the uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Trump. He is a stalwart conservative. He and his wife are friends of mine. Um, We're talking about the Conservative Partnership Institute. We're talking about the Heritage Foundation. We're talking about the America First Policy Institute. All great organizations, all organizations that have their priorities straight. And these are organizations who are reportedly working behind the scenes to train staffers or identify people who are already trained and qualified to fill potential jobs in the administrative state if the president of the United States, President Trump, hypothetically in this scenario, were to be able to fire the ones who, the the ideologues who are currently creating, who are currently the swamp preachers. Swamp so I talked to Rachel Bovard at the Conservative Partnership Institute about this um, as I was studying up on this, and she had a very succinct response to their involvement in this project and what the goal is. This is what she said to me. She said, we are trying to find and train competent, substantive, and tactical people to work in these positions should they open up. And I laughed when she said that because I thought, oh my goodness, this is so controversial. This is worth all the scare headlines that we're seeing from the left. Oh, these, these lists, they're, they're, they're putting together these secret lists of people. No, they're training people um, to make sure that we have competent employees to run the administrative state. Because the fact of the matter is, it's not just the cabinet level appointees at the top of each of these agencies who are corrupting the agencies with, with politics. It's actually staff members who are doing everyday government employee jobs, who are ideologues, driven by their political agenda, who are actively trying to stop. They're actively trying to counter what's coming, even from the top, even from the top of the agency. I, I just did um a, a really, really interesting interview with. Former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, you can you can go to my locals Liz slash locals and you can watch that if you want exclusive early access to that interview. And I talked with her about her experience at the Department of Education because she said, "Listen, like I, she had her priorities straight when she was at the Department of Education, but the staff members, not not the not her immediate team that she brought in with her, but these government, these civil service employees, these these." Well, the deep staters, right? The people who stay throughout administrations, they actively tried to subvert her directives. They actively tried to counter what she was trying to do at the Department of Education. And that's not an isolated incident that happens over and over again. So these secret lists being being um, put together by these organizations aren't, aren't anything to be anxious about unless you are a leftist ideologue like uh, like the Democratic Party is and you see this as a threat to your agenda because you need the deep state to stop republicans. All that being said, there are, I find this whole discussion extremely interesting because there were basically two concerns, there are two concerns that a lot of Trump supporters have are feeling, they've articulated them to me. I've had any number of conversations with with you guys and with other people who work in politics and people uh, across the country, even family members who were very avid Trump supporters in 2016 throughout his whole presidency but they have two concerns with the idea of President Trump running again in 2024. The first concern that a lot, a lot of people expressed to me is how President Trump handled COVID. The fact that he uh, elevated Fauci and Burks to the position that they were in. The fact that um, he supported a lot of lockdown measures. The fact that he, to this day, brags about Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine, and pushes this vaccine, which is a big pharma scam, as we all know. Um, And he doesn't seem to have learned his lesson. I mean, he doesn't seem to, he still seems to be very excited and very proud of the vaccine. He doesn't seem to realize that it's maybe the greatest pharma fraud that's ever been propagated on the American people. Um, That's the first concern that a a lot of Trump supporters feel. I share this concern. The second concern is who President Trump surrounded himself with, whether this was at the cabinet secretary level, whether this was at the National Security Council, whether this was advisors, there was a revolving door in the Trump administration. And while I don't have a problem theoretically with a revolving door, the reason there was a revolving door is because he, he kept appointing people who weren't good at their jobs, who didn't share his view of the country and therefore didn't share his agenda. And he didn't seem to learn his lesson—not to surround himself with deep staters and suckups and idiots and morons who were actively going to harm his agenda versus help him achieve what voters sent him to the White House to achieve. I, I generally share these two concerns with with a, a good segment of Trump supporters about whether President Trump has learned his lesson if he were to run in 2024. There's also sort of a third a third element that should be considered if President Trump is going to consider running again. And that, that third element is, can he win? Because we have right now Joe Biden, who's extremely unpopular, who, I mean, he seems pretty easy to beat Joe Biden. It, I mean, he it, you really shouldn't have to campaign that hard to beat Joe Biden because of what he's done to our economy, because he's what he's done to the American people. But When you poll people about Joe Biden, even Democrats, they say they want someone else. They say they're ready for a change. But when you ask them, well, what if Trump runs again? What if it's Trump versus Biden? They actually push to the side a lot of their unhappiness with Biden because they're so blinded by Trump derangement syndrome. I hate to say this. I really do. I wish this wasn't true. But Trump derangement syndrome and the mainstream media's vilification of President Trump was incredibly effective. President Trump and any other time in any other era, the policies that he enacted are kind of just neutral Republican policies. There wasn't anything crazy ever. A lot of his tweets were bombastic. The way that he was nasty to some people, sure, that was, and you know, like like it or hate it. But his actual policies, the political things that he did, were very neutral. I mean, think about the hate and the um the outrage from the left about the border wall. President Trump's border policies were like the same as Bill Clinton's and Barack Obama's. Um, But you'd never know that if you were listening to the mainstream media talk about it, you would think it was this this crazy, radical, right-wing conspiracy. And so there is this third bar of concern. Is President Trump, could he win given the fact that the mainstream media and the left were so successful in vilifying him? I don't know the answer to that. I do worry about that. Okay, so the two concerns though, COVID and who President Trump surrounds himself with, does Schedule F address either of those things? Now Schedule F, I want to bring up Schedule F because I want to read the beginning of this executive order together. So the executive order itself is called Executive Order on Creating Schedule F in the Accepted Service. It is Executive Order 13957. It was issued on October 21st of 2020. Um, The idea behind this executive order, by the way, for anybody who wants to look into this further, was the idea was uh, created or discovered, really. He didn't create this concept, but it was discovered and put together by a man named James Shirk, who at the time worked for the Domestic Policy Council. So Google him if you're interested. Um, Google exactly how he created this. It's kind of an interesting story. But this is what the executive order says. By the authority vested in me as president, by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America... Um, It is hereby ordered as follows, section one, policy. To effectively carry out the broad array of activities assigned to the executive branch under law, the president and his appointees must rely on men and women in the federal service employed in positions of a confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, and policy-advocating character. Faithful execution of the law requires that the president have appropriate management oversight regarding this select cadre of professionals. The federal government benefits from career professionals in positions that are not normally subject to change as a result of a presidential transition, but who discharge significant duties and exercise significant discretion in formulating and implementing executive branch policy and programs under the laws of the United States. The heads of executive departments and agencies and the American people also entrust these career professionals with non-public information that must be kept confidential. With the exception of attorneys in the federal service who are appointed pursuant to schedule A of the accepted service and members of the senior executive service, appointments to these positions are generally made through the competitive service. Now, remember that phrase, competitive service. Given the importance of the functions they discharge, employees in in such positions must display, display appropriate temperament, acumen, impartiality, and sound judgment. Due to these requirements, agencies should have a greater degree of appointment flexibility with respect to these employees than is afforded by the existing competitive service process. Further, effective performance management of employees in confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating positions is of the utmost importance. Unfortunately, the government's current performance management is inadequate, as recognized by federal workers themselves. For instance, the 2016 Merit Principles Survey reveals that less than a quarter of federal employees believe their agency addresses poor performers effectively. Separating employees who cannot or will not meet required performance standards is important, and it is particularly important with regard to employees in confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating positions. High performance by such employees can meaningfully enhance agency operations, while poor performance can significantly hinder them. Senior agency officials report that poor performance by career employees in policy-relevant positions has resulted in long delays and substandard quality work for important agency projects, such as drafting and issuing regulations. Pursuant, the president writes, to my authority under Section 33021 of Title V, United States Code, I find that conditions of good administration make necessary an exception to the competitive hiring rules and examinations for career positions in the federal service of a confidential policy determining, policy making, or policy advocating character. These conditions include the need to provide agency heads with additional flexibility to assess prospective appointees without the limitations imposed by competitive service selection procedures. Placing these positions in the accepted service will mitigate undue limitations on their selection. This action will also give agencies greater ability and discretion to assess critical qualities in applicants to fill these positions, such as work ethic, judgment, and ability to meet the particular needs of an agency. These are all qualities individuals should have before wielding the authority inherent in in their prospective positions, and agencies should be able to assess candidates without proceeding through complicated and elaborate competitive service processes or rating procedures that do not necessarily reflect their particular needs. So, The reason that I read the beginning of this executive order is because it's painted as some draconian overreach restructuring, um, almost authoritarian power grab on the, on the part of president Trump. And it's not the language as you heard is actually very vanilla, very boring, almost very neutral. And it it talks about this competitive hiring process. And that phrase is a little bit of what we talked about on yesterday's show, um, when when we talked about how the left redefines words and they redefine words obviously in order to uh to twi- to twist the definition of those words to fit their political agenda and that's exactly what competitive hiring practices means competitive hiring practices means that your immutable characteristics or your your lack of uh, your lack of privilege points counts towards your hiring more more than your education your training and your experience and your skills as it relates to the job that you're going to fill, so regardless of ideology, even for a second, that kind of hiring process is not going to result in any kind of agency being staffed with the most competent, the most highly qualified people. It's going to be um, a bunch of people who were picked, who are who are token employees, essentially, who were picked on the basis of their skin color, picked on the basis of their of their gender, picked on the basis of um, I don't know whatever other woke characteristics the left likes to take into account to elevate people. Um, to places that they may not be the most qualified, they just they just look or act a certain way, and that's enough for the left. That's all the left wants from them. But th- this this executive order is not controversial. It also, by the way, doesn't apply to most of most of the two million federal employees. It, it would leave about two million in addition to the 4,000 that the president usually replaces plus, the 50,000 that this executive order could impact—that still leaves an additional 2 million employees that aren't easily fireable. So, so what is this? What does this executive order actually do? It gives the president's administration the ability to hire people based on their their qualifications, um, not just based on their immutable characteristics, and it gives. the the heads of these executive agencies, including the president of the United States, the ability to fire people if they are poor performers, if they can't or if they won't fulfill the duties of their job, because the duties of their jobs are so serious that they have significant impact on whether projects and policies and regulations get done or don't get done, which means these individuals have significant influence over the overall political policy in the United States that impacts your life and impacts my life. These are people that impact policies. Therefore, they ought to be fired if they are getting in uh, getting in the way. So to boil this all down, essentially the problem, this, this circles back to the very beginning of what we were talking about, that President Trump promised to drain the swamp and failed to drain the swamp. And the problem wasn't just the heads of these executive agencies or the political appointees. The problem was the bureaucracy itself. The bureaucracy itself Um, or I should say it wasn't the only problem, the political appointees that was somewhat of a problem. Yes, but it wasn't the only problem. Meaning when you switch those political appointees as president Trump did, it didn't fix the problem because it wasn't the entire problem. The bureaucracy itself was the entire problem. So the strategy of this, of this schedule F reassignment of federal employees is okay. If this bureaucracy is going to be in place, Um, because the Supreme Court refused to enforce the non-delegation theory and the separation of powers doctrine, then let's just replace the bureaucracy. Let's take a bureaucracy that worked for the left and replace it with a bureaucracy that works for the right. How can this be done? This can be done by firing the individuals who are working counter to a Republican president and replacing them with qualified people. Now, where do you find those qualified people? That's where this executive order, this Schedule F strategy relies on these outside groups, whether it's Russ Votes Group or the Conservative Partnership Institute or Heritage or the America First Policy Institute to make lists to identify people who are already qualified and to train people who are not yet qualified for this position. So, it kind of deflates the balloon, right? That started out as, oh, this massive hit piece from Axios on President Trump about how he's going to fundamentally restructure the government as if, that's, as if that's a bad thing. And it ends with, why did Axios write this hit piece and try to exaggerate what this is, to try to elevate a threat that's not really much of a threat? Well, the reason that they wrote this hit piece is because of President Trump's comeback tour, where he's starting to talk about this. He's starting to address people's concerns, because people like me have been open about a concern with who he surrounded himself with and how exactly he's going to take care of the administrative state. So he's talking about that. But it's also because um, when Axios writes a series like this, it's a signal to Democrats in Congress um, to put into place protections of the administrative state, specifically so that the Democrats can pass an appropriation bill that forbids the use of federal money in executing something like Schedule F. This is this is, a, this is a hint, a nudge, a kick in the pants to Democrats to make sure that this can never happen. That's the crux of the Axios hit piece. But here's what I will say. Here's what I will say. This is the kind of plan that we should demand from any candidate. Whether Trump ends up being the 2024 presidential nominee for Republicans or not, whether some other candidate ends up being. This is the kind of plan that we should demand from any candidate that we consider. Any candidate who doesn't have a plan like this should be disqualified in our eyes, because this is the kind of thing that has to be done in order for conservative principles to be effective at the highest office in our land. It's actually, by the way, kind of like what President Trump did in 2016, even in 2015, when he released that list of potential Supreme Court nominees and said, if I'm president, I will pick a Supreme Court justice from this list. That's kind of what this, this plan is. This is saying, listen, I understand your principles and I'm in. A, here's how I'm going to achieve them. I'm not just gonna sit here and verbally tell you that I share your principles. Here's how it's going to be done. Um, and any candidate that doesn't recognize this can't be taken seriously because honestly, there are a lot of candidates, there are a lot of politicians who do share values or who say they do, but they have no idea what the fight is. They have no idea how to fight this fight, how to actually drain the swamp. And so we, the American people, shouldn't just allow Republican politicians who want to be president or who want to serve in any kind of high-level Republican position in government to tell us, we share your values. That should not be enough. We should require them, require these politicians to show us plans just like this, um, to prove to us that they won't be stymied at the federal level, because if they are, then it's, it's it's barely worth having them there at all. Okay, over on Locals, on the Liz Wheeler Show community on Locals, we are going to watch perhaps the funniest, but also so frustrating, so infuriating. Um, Kamala Harris is a national embarrassment. I'm sure Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping watching this video actually laughed, and laughed because they know that uh, the United States of America with Kamala Harris in charge would, can be crushed like a beetle. We're going to watch that video. Join us, LizWheelerShow.com slash Locals. If you use my promo code, which is access, you can get uh, one month free on your annual subscription, so why not? Join us, lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Thank you for watching, thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler, this is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay, executive producer, Chad Abbott, director of photography, Kevin McRoberts, editor, Alejandro Figuerilla, sound mixer, Robin Fenderson, director of marketing, Emily Washler, Production and Talent Coordinator, Matt Toffler, and Senior Publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront Production. If you haven't already, give this video a thumbs up, hit the subscribe button below, and ring the bell to make sure you never miss a video.